0: Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Ephesians tonight. It's The same passage we looked at this morning in our daily devotional. And so I just thought we'd dive a little deeper into this concept of how Christ pursues us. How we have a God that, that sometimes we think he's playing this cosmic hide and seek, that we have to pick up the trail and find him when really he is the one that is pursuing us. He is the one that is chasing us down. He is the one that's inviting us to come back to him and be welcomed back into his family. And so uh, I thought I'd start with a little story. I've actually been reading it in um, a book, actually, I started this week called The Pursuing God. And, and uh, that's not any relation to this. It's just that's what kind of happened. That's by um, providence that happened. But he told a story at the beginning. He he told a story about an artist. How this artist, just he is whisking the brush around here and there, making this absolute masterpiece of a painting. Swift of a brush and all these different bright colors, everything going on. And he almost takes a step back to look at it and says, it is good. Just this beautiful painting, this beautiful masterpiece. And then something starts to happen. This tiny black spot appears in the middle. What happened it starts spreading and growing, almost like this black mold that starts just eating away at everything. And so the artist starts, what am I going to do? And, and out of all things, the artist could said, well, it's, it's ruined, it's going to keep decaying, and, and I'll just let it be. But instead, as strange as it sounds, he steps into the painting. He steps in this painting that he painted, and now this black mold that was starting to decay everything else now starts attacking the artist himself. And what's crazy, it starts wrapping its arms around him, starts to attack him. And then in one fell swoop, woof, the decay is gone. That the artist took on all of it, took on all that was destroying the painting and renewed this painting back to its beautiful masterpiece. But it was even more beautiful because that artist was residing with its very painting itself, the very masterpiece that he's creating. That he stepped in and saved this masterpiece. Some people hear that and say that's kind of a strange story. Why would anyone want it, especially if it's starting to decay and rotten and mold? I get it, but why not just start a new painting? But this artist, the artist, the creator of this masterpiece, found this masterpiece just irresistible and wanted to save it. And that is a beautiful picture of the gospel message that we see. Is that sin has entered into the world and starts affecting and affecting everything? It starts destroying and decaying everything. It affects us itself and how it can be so easy for God to be like, that's it. I'm not going to worry about this anymore. I'll just create new. He says, no, I'm going to send my son into the middle of this creation, into the middle of the muck, into the middle of all of this sin to save this masterpiece. That Christ pursues us, Christ comes to us in the middle of our mess and saves us. He comes and he meets us where we're at regardless of where we are to bring us back into the fold, into the family of God. But here's the thing, we as fallen sinful human beings, we're prone to run from God and we want nothing to do with him. We want nothing to do with salvation. We much rather live our lives how we want and continue running in the opposite direction. We feel like we know what's best. But here's the main point of what I want us to get tonight. Unfortunately, I don't have it up here right now, so you're going to have to listen and write down. The main point you see on the top of your notes is this. Christ pursues us and delivers us by the grace of God through faith in him. Christ pursues us and delivers us by the grace of God, through faith in Him. And I'll say it one more time, and then we'll read the passage. Again, the main point is, Christ pursues us and delivers us by the grace of God, through faith in Him. And so, this is what we're going to look at in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is the passage we're going to be looking at tonight. So if you already have your copy of God's Word, that's where we'll be. This is the Word of the Lord. Dear Lord, we just come before you just so gracious. We are just so overwhelmed by just the grace that you lavish upon us, as your word says. So Lord, I pray over these next several minutes, would you just free us up of any distractions? Would you free us up from our phones, even from our neighbors, maybe what's going on behind the scenes in our own personal lives or, or homes or anything else? Would you just help us hone in to what you want to teach us through your inspired word? So Holy Spirit, would you just help me properly proclaim Christ crucified through this passage, that none of it will be my opinions, it'll only be your truth, because it is your truth that sets captives free. So I pray tonight people will be set free from different bondages. Would you just search us and know that there is no offensive way in us, and would you lead us in the way of the everlasting? Would you just hide me behind your cross and let your word speak for itself as only you can? Would you guide us? Would all of this be glorifying and honoring to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so there's three truths that Paul wants us to get out of this passage as we look at this. And the first one is this. Without Christ, we are dead in sin. So without Christ, we are dead in sin. And so that comes from the first three verses where it says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." So it's important to give a little bit of context of what's going on. In Ephesians 1, what Paul was doing is he was explaining God's plan for reconciliation and redemption. So he was explaining the reconciliation and redemption of all of creation through Christ Jesus. How God loves us, how God lavishes his grace upon us, and makes known to us the mystery of his will. And he does this through Christ. So it is by the will of God, by the blood of Jesus, and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And so Ephesians 1 is all about God's plan of reconciliation, while Ephesians 2 through 3, which is part of this, is all about the execution of that plan. So right here in the first three verses, Paul wants to make it crystal clear that the unescapable truth is that we need Jesus. That we need Christ. He's giving us the state of unbelievers, whether we are currently an unbeliever or if we are a believer now, what we once lived in. What once used to be our reality. Thing is, like I said, we are dead. Very first three words, and you were dead. Dead meaning literally spiritually dead. Obviously not physically dead because we're all still standing here. We're all still breathing. We're all still going. But spiritually dead. Completely indifferent towards the things of God. So because that we are spiritually dead, that means we cannot communicate with God Or generate life. So we need the grace of God to bring new life into us in transformation. So why are we spiritually dead? The reason we're spiritually dead is because, like I said, our trespasses and sins. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And so what that means, trespass and sins, they're basically the same thing in this passage. They're both referring to an act or feeling that transgresses something required by God's law or character. So all this started in the Garden of Eden. So God created Adam and Eve and he gave them freedom. You can eat all of these, all these trees, but this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's the thing they disobeyed, as we read in Genesis, which led to spiritual death. It led to separation and fellowship with God and incapable of spiritual activity or any sort of development for God. So because of that act, sin entered into the world and then it infected, infected And impacted everything. So we see all this hurt and pain and stuff around us. It is a cause of sin. And so because of Adam and Eve and the sin that they committed back then and how it infected and impacted everything, because of that, we are born with this sin nature that is indifferent towards the things of God. And instead, desires to live for ourselves and not God. And so we will actually deliberately act against God because that is naturally what we are bent towards because that's what we are born with. And so because we are born with this bent towards wanting to glorify ourselves and doing what we see best, then that leads to different effects. And so he explains the effects of that over these next two verses. So because we're born with this sin nature, we see in verses two and three the effects of that. The first is that we are following the course of this world. In other words, we're following the philosophy of the world. So here's what it says in verse 2, following the course of this world. So we're following the philosophy of the world. And what that world means, it's morals, values, and beliefs that are in distinction and rebellion against God. So since our hearts are bent towards glorifying and satisfying ourselves, the world makes it easy when their philosophy is, like you say, to follow your heart, to do what makes you happy, to speak your truth, to do what you think is best. And so when we're living around that, that just feeds the sinful desires of our hearts. Okay, so we want to follow our heart. In Jeremiah, it says our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. That our hearts are hearted. They don't want to do anything. They want nothing to do with God. So if it says follow your heart, okay, that means I'm going to follow it away from God. So it says to follow your heart, to speak your truth, things like that. The second, it says we are following the prince of the power of the air in this passage. So the prince of the power of the air, to kind of simplify that something, it's talking about Satan. It's talking about the devil, the enemy, different words you might hear for that. What it means is Satan energizes this world around us, feeds the philosophy of the world. So obviously it says the prince of the power of the air. What that's not saying is that it doesn't mean Satan is physically in the air. It's not saying... Okay, you took a deep breath of Satan. That's not what it's saying in this passage. What it means is, it means that Satan has spiritual power and control in this world. And so, because we're born with this sin nature that is bent towards wanting to glorify ourselves, because we have this philosophy of the world that says, do what you think is best, follow your heart, and then we have Satan energizing that, that means this, that we are surrendered to the powers of evil that we are surrendered to the powers of evil, that, there, that there's nothing we can do against that because naturally that's the way our heart goes. And so because that third, it leads to this, that we have the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. So it says the spirit now that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So basically what that means, that, that spirit that is working, it just means the atmosphere that is created by the influence of Satan in the world. So it's this encouragement of holding these ungodly values and attitudes and actions. And so because our hearts are bent towards wanting to glorify ourselves, they naturally get swept up into this atmosphere of just following our heart of whatever we best see fit. We just get swept up and caught up in the moment around us. A way I would kind of illustrate this, is: anybody ever been to a sporting event where, I mean, it was an electric atmosphere? I mean, like, it was... Rocking, You were you and you just got into it. You didn't know. You didn't know you had booze inside of you. You didn't know you had cheers inside of you. You didn't know where any of this came from, where you just get so caught up in the moment. Uh, This is actually me. uh, A few years ago, Uh, my alma mater, Liberty uh, University, was playing in their conference championship in basketball. They were playing against the Radford Highlanders. Um, And the winner of this game won the conference and they punched their ticket to March Madness. So that big uh, college basketball tournament you see every March where you fill out the brackets and everything else like that. So I remember we were able to go to the game. and I mean, it was so packed out. It was so electric. I remember screaming my lungs out, booing when I thought the refs cheated our team, cheering when I thought we had a great play, thinking the refs robbed us of our team, thinking all refs are bad with some of those things. And I remember we lost on a on a buzzer beater three. And I remember the fans were all cheering and storming the court and everything else. And I just wanted nothing to do with it. I wanted to leave. I wanted to go back home or go back to school and just not worry about it. Why? Because we got so caught up in the atmosphere of it. It was so electric. We were so just motivated. We were just so overwhelmed by it that. We got caught up into this. Well, see, that's just one game. Obviously, you can go back and you can kind of calm down. You maybe still kick yourself over it, but, but that's just one game. This atmosphere we're talking about here, it's all around us. It's not just a temporary thing we step into and then we can go back home. We can go back home and then we can get away from it. No, it's, it's constantly around us. And this naturally leads us to living out and carrying out the desires and passions of our flesh, mind, and body. So because we have this natural bent towards wanting to glor, uh, glorify ourselves, and this philosophy feeds that saying just follow your heart, and then we have Satan energizing that philosophy. And then it creates this atmosphere where it's constantly encouraging that. Then naturally it leads to the next thing in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And so our flesh is like our sinful nature. Again, we have this atmosphere around us that we can get so caught up and swept in so easily. Let me ask you some of these. When you're in school, how easy is it to give in to gossip? When you're around people. Or when you're alone, how easy is it to give in to lust? Or when you accomplish something huge, how easy is it to give in to pride like, yeah, I did that? Or when you feel wronged, how easy is it to give in to anger towards someone, hold a grudge towards that person? How easy is it to, let's say, go on social media and get so caught up saying like, well, that person has more followers than me. Their aesthetic looks a lot better than mine. Or whatever the case could be on that. Is that it can get, or we get so jealous of, let's say, what it seems like other people are doing, whether it be for summer or whatever else. It's because our hearts are bent towards wanting to glorify ourselves. And so we live in an atmosphere that encourages that. It's easy to get caught up in that. So, because our hearts are bent towards rebelling against God and glorifying ourselves, we're following the philosophies of this world. We're being conformed into the image of the devil because he's the one energizing everything. We're being, uh, by the atmosphere around us, and then. Of course, since we have all this going on, so when the devil just places a temptation in front of us that appeases that sinful nature, we give in to that t- temptation rather easily because there's, that's natural where our hearts are bent towards. And so be, because of that, because of this progression of this, it leads to this, and we're by nature children of wrath. So we're constantly given to these temptations, we're rebelling against God, which means that we are children of wrath. That means that we are under the wrath and judgment of God. And so what is the judgment? What is the penalty for sin? Well, in Romans 6.23, Paul makes it very clear that the wages of sin is death, that God takes sin very seriously. So we're born with this sin nature. And it's naturally indifferent towards God. We want to glorify ourselves. We're living in a world where these philosophies encourage that, encourage these things against God. Philosophies energized by Satan himself and creates just these sinful desire, or creates this atmosphere that appeases us. And when he places temptation in front of us, we give in. And so when we give in to them, we're children of wrath. We're children of the judgment of God. And, so it's, and we're dead. The thing is, like at the beginning, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So it's not like we can just naturally do anything in and of ourselves to make ourselves alive. And so if we are dead in our sins with no way of making ourselves alive, it seems like that there is no hope. That seems rather bleak. That seems rather hopeless. But that's not where the story ends not where the story ends. Because here's the thing, it's only by the power of God that can make us alive. And so that leads us to the second main point, which is this. With Christ, we are made alive by grace. We're made alive by grace. So here's what it says, starting in verse 4. But God I think the first two words in verse 4 might arguably be one of the greatest two words in all of history. What hinges on these two words changes the trajectory of everything. We are dead in our sins. We're without hope. We, we have no way of escape. But God stepped in. But God came through. But God came into our mess. But God stepped into the masterpiece and said, I will take on all of this decay. I will take on all this on myself so I can rescue these people. It says God is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. One way that it shows how rich in mercy is in Colossians two twelve through 15. It talks about the same kind of deal where, where we were dead in our trespasses. But because we were buried with Christ, we were resurrected with him. That we had this sin debt that we could not afford. We had this insurmountable price that we could not pay. But Christ is so rich in mercy that he paid our debt in full. He paid every last penny. Not only that, he said he removed all of the legal obligations against that by nailing it to the cross. That when he said it is finished, it is finished finished. It is paid in full. It is done. He paid for the penalty for all of our sins for all of time. Past, present, and future. What this means Mercy. That he, he shows mercy. Mercy is showing pity towards those who are totally undeserving and unworthy. And as we saw for the first three verses, we are totally undeserving and unworthy. All we bring to God is a broken heart, a soul full of sin. Yet He still lavishes his grace upon us he still shows his mercy and love towards us here's the thing: god is rich in mercy so it says he is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us he's rich in mercy because he has great love for us one of the verses i would use to describe this is one we probably all learned is john three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's saying, God so loved the world. I love you so much. I love you so much that I'm going to send my Son to die on the cross to redeem you back to me. That is love. That He sent Jesus down to earth for people that might or might not accept Him. Yet Jesus still says, I'm going to take on the cross. Jesus went to the cross with each and every one of us in mind. Our sins, past, present, future. Knowing the sins we have committed in our past, the skeletons in our closet. Knowing the sins that we will commit, maybe even this week. And the sins we'll commit in the future. He says, I am still going to pay for the penalty for their sin. I'm still going to go to the cross and die for them. God so greatly loves humanity and longs to restore humanity back to where it was in the beginning in creation with Adam and Eve. So think about this. Look at what it says next, okay? He's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And then in verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So even when we are dead in our sins, remember what means dead in our sins? It means we want nothing to do with God. That we're just living our own life. Even when we're dead in our sins, wanting nothing to do with God, Christ pursues us regardless. And he makes us alive with him. Think about this. Christ breaks through all those barriers that we saw in the first three verses. So the philosophy of this world, he breaks right through that. The control that Satan has, he broke right through that. In fact, it says in Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, he says that he became just like us. Not not to help out angels, but to help out the sons of Abraham, the sons and daughters of Abraham. That is you and I, so that he can break the power that Satan has over us. He can break the chains that hold us back. And as well, that when we are tempted, he knows how to help us when we are tempted. That he breaks the control Satan has on us. And he breaks through our hardened hearts. These desires of our flesh that we will live out these things, our hardened hearts, no matter how sinfully he is, Christ still pursues us. And he breaks through that. Why? Because we are saved by grace. By the unmerited, undeserving grace of God. Here's the thing. Here's what it means by saved, that we are saved by grace. A lot of times people think, okay, I've been saved in the past and that's it. Yes, that that is true. You have been delivered. So saved another way for saved is, is delivered from sin, delivered from that. But here's the thing is with saved, it is a present tense word. So what that means, it doesn't just mean it was a past thing. It is something that is continuous and ongoing. So what that means, it's both accomplished and it's ongoing. So what it means is, yes, you have been saved from your sin once and for all, that if you have been delivered, if you've repented and believed in Christ, you have been saved, brought into the family of God, and you are secured eternally. But it also means that times when we go along the way and we still struggle, we still struggle with our sin. We still struggle with our doubts. We still struggle with our fears. Christ still delivers us. Christ still pursues us. It's not like Christ said, okay, you're saved. I'm on to the next person. I'm meeting my quota. He knows. No, I'm with you every step of the way. I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Christ loves us. There's nothing that can stop Christ. He loves us. And so here's the effects of being saved by grace. We looked at the effects of when we're born to sin and how we follow that. Now we look at the effects of being saved by grace. In verse six, and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms. That means our citizenship has changed. All of this is because of Christ's resurrection. We are no longer bound for hell, but we are bound for heaven. It's a beautiful thing, because here's the thing. Because Christ was physically resurrected, we can be spiritually resurrected. Because Christ was physically resurrected, we can be spiritually resurrected. What that means is when Christ went to die on the cross and he says it is finished, he paid for the penalty for all of our sins for all of time. Which means there is no sin too great that he cannot forgive. But also when he bodily was resurrected out of the grave, what that means is he has overcome sin and all the consequences of sin. The biggest one being death, which means that there is no amount of wrongs we can do that will stop him from loving us. That, as it says in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And here's the beautiful thing. Not only does Christ go to that extent of where he saves us and delivers us, God wants to display us. God wants to show us off. Here's what it says in verse seven. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God desires to show his immeasurable riches of grace in kindness towards us. Like I said, what the word show means, it means to display. So God wants us to display us to the world for all to see, but not just now, but through all of eternity not just now to show in the world this is what it looks like to be redeemed and reconciled back to God, but that even the angels will be awestruck. And look at the cost it took to bring these people. Look how awesome God is. God just doesn't just save us, but he wants to show us off. He wants to display us. He wants to use us. People that wanted nothing to do with God, and yet he wants us and wants to use us to spread this gospel to other people. So one way he shows that is through the church. That is one way displays it. So those mission sites we went on today, as simple as that might seem, whether it be from sorting clothes, packing blessing bags, painting a fence in a ridiculous amount of hot heat, I might add, um, is, is that's one way we can show the immeasurable riches. That look, we, I don't even deserve to take my next breath, but I get to paint a fence for the glory of God. I get to come alongside a ministry and help them for the glory of God. See, he wants to show this immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. So what that kindness means, it means a loving attitude of his children put into action who have been delivered from Satan and redeemed. So here's the beautiful thing. We go from children of wrath to children of grace. We go by following the philosophies of this world to being able to follow the values of the kingdom. We get to go from being, being surrendered to the powers of evil to now being able to be to the surrender to the powers of goodness and grace. We no longer have to worry about caving in to our temptations every single time. But we have an escape. We have someone that's with us. We have someone that's been tempted in every single way and empowers us to be able to escape from those passions. Now, is that saying that every single day will be easy, easy street? No. There will be days that are tough. There'll be days that we struggle with sins and doubts and fears. That comes with it. But Christ never leaves us. Christ says, look, I resurrected out of the grave to help you with every single bit of this. It's not like as soon as we have fears or doubts, it's like, God's like, I didn't plan for this. No, God knew all of this in advance. He knew all of our sins, past, present, future, the fears, the doubts, the struggles we would have. And still sends Christ to die for us. And he says he's with us every single step of the way. That Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is a beautiful thing. We go from being at odds with God to being used by God. And then he he reemphasizes this point in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So Paul emphasizes again that it is by the grace of God for which we have been saved. Okay, so we've been saved by grace, by the grace of God, by his initiative to come save us. And then it says through faith. So what through faith is, that is the human response to God's finished work on the cross. So our response is we must repent of our sins, repent of this old way of living, what we once used to do. And we need to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then we receive that love of God. We receive Christ as Lord and Savior that he has shown through the resurrection. Here's what I want us to understand. Salvation is all the work of God and a gift of God. Salvation, every step of the way, it is all God. It is all the work of God, and it is a gift of God. Which means God did not have to. God did not have to to give us this gift, but because he is rich in mercy, because he loves us so much, that he sent Christ to offer us this escape. So if God did all the work for salvation, and if it is a gift, all we must do is receive it. All we must do is receive it. Let me ask you this. Have you received this free gift of salvation? Have you repented of your sins? Have you believed in Christ? Have you turned from your old way of living and turned to Jesus so he can save your soul? Or have you been trying to receive salvation by your own means? Do you believe that if you go through enough events, if you read the Bible enough times, if you meet a quota for how many times you pray or how hard you pray, that maybe you'll be able to receive salvation. Here's the thing, as we've seen in this, there is nothing physically we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do by our own means to save us. Again, it's not a result of our works, like it said. That's what Jesus says next. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is not a result of works. Why? So that way we we can't boast in anything of ourselves. We can only boast in Christ. Because here's the thing, if we were able to get salvation on our own terms, we'd probably be bragging about ourselves in our own terms. But here's the thing: we can only boast in Christ, because Christ is the one that did all the work. We only boast in Christ and what he did on Calvary's Hill. That is our only hope. So here's the beautiful thing: that without Christ, we are dead in sin. But with Christ, we are made alive by grace. That he wants to use. But one more thing that he wants us to do, because of Christ, we have a purpose. Because of Christ, we have a purpose. Look what it says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So not only does God break through all of the barriers, not only does God welcome us home, not only does God die for all of our sins and give us a way to escape and a way of salvation, and God wants to use us. God gives us a purpose as well. It's not like God just saves and says, all right, I'll see you in heaven. God's like, no, I want to use you as well. And again, all of this is by his grace. Just like we were only saved by grace, it is only by his grace that we can live out these good works and live for him and point people to him. So again, it says we are his workmanship. What I want to say is his workmanship means his masterpiece. We are his masterpiece. We think back to creation in the beginning when God was creating everything. Okay, he created, he created you know, the heavens and everything else. He said, it is good. He created all the vegetation. He said, it is good. He created just all the animals and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and said, it is good. But you know what happened when he created man? He said, it is very good. I mean, think about it. With the creator of the universe already saying something is good. Imagine when he says something is very good. That we are the crown jewel of God's creation. And that he still comes to redeem us back to himself. He still dies for us. He doesn't give out hope on us. So it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So there's actually only one other time this word created is actually used. And that's Romans 1.20. And that's talking about the creation in Genesis. It's talking about the creation of the world. So what, he, what, here, uh, what Paul is talking about here is Christ recreating us. Recreating his masterpiece, the crown jewel of his creation, recreating us back into that image that was at the beginning. Of course, we won't see that fully completed until he returns and rights every wrong, but he's able to redeem us back to himself. He's able to restore us to a right relationship with God. And so here's what he says Okay, we we are reconciled by him and we're able to be saved and everything. We have this purpose. So, what is this purpose? What did he create us for? Good works. So it says for years of worship, create in Christ Jesus for good works. So what is this good works? It is showing this loving attitude that God has showed us through Christ. It's kind of like what Pastor Aaron said. It is our worship. That God has had this revelation. He's revealed to us that, wow, like we are saved by grace. That Christ pursues us. That Christ loves us. Naturally, that should lead us to just want to jump and sing and dance. And that any little thing we do, God has used that to glorify him and point people to him. We might not think about it that way, but think about it. God placed you at your school to glorify him. God placed you on the sports teams you are on to glorify him. God placed you in the neighborhoods, in your jobs to glorify him. We might not think about it that way. As weird as it sounds, we can do homework for the glory of God. We can stock shelves for the glory of God. We can dribble a basketball. We can swim. We can dance. We can do all this for the glory of God. That God has gifted us in these ways for good works. Why? So ultimately, we can point us back saying it's because of Christ. It's not I. It's not I, but Christ Through me, as we sang about, he is our only hope. He is our only redemption. And he is why we live. He's the reason we sing. He's the reason we come to camp. He's the reason we do these things. So here's the thing. It is representing Christ in the places that he has divinely placed us. It is surrendering to him. It is living for him. It is becoming more like him. Just as we are saved by grace, we can only live these good works out by his grace. So One more thing I want us to understand is we are not saved by good works. We are not saved by good works. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to save us by good works. But we are saved for good works. So we are not saved by good works. We're not saved by these means that we think we can do it. But we are saved. And so out of that overflow, we can live these things out. Not because we're trying to earn more brownie points with God, but because we actually get to do these. We actually get to do this. Again, all of this is only by Christ. All of this is only by Christ. So here's the thing Christ pursues us. Christ pursues us. Even when we are running away from Him, even when our heart's natural bent is towards wanting nothing to do with Him, Christ still pursues us. So let me ask you this Are you tired of running from God? Are you tired of trying to live life your own way, trying to do things that you think will make you happy, only for them to come up feeling more empty and more lonely and more unworthy? Are you tired of that? Are you tired of running? But a more important question is that we have a Christ that pursues us, that will break through every wall, that will break through every lie, that will stop at nothing to rescue us. But here's the question I want us to ask. Do you want to be found? Are you ready to be found by Christ? Are you ready to be found by Him? Are you ready to, to give up the ways of this world and turn to Him? Because here's the thing. Christ is not playing cosmic hide-and-go-seek. Christ is saying, hey, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Just as the prodigal son returned home, the father sprints. Just as we start turning to Christ, Christ is sprinting towards us with an unrelenting love and an unstoppable grace and just an unmatched mercy. So are you ready to be found? It makes me think back in the beginning of of just Genesis, where as soon as they sinned, Adam and Eve just ran off. What was God doing? God pursued them and said, where are you? So let me ask us: Where are you in life? Where are you? Are you hiding? Are you keep trying to run away from God? Or Are you ready to be found? If you're ready to be found, it is by repenting of your sins. What repenting means is turning away, turning away from your old way of living, and turning to Him. So if you are not a follower of Christ, what that means it means turning away from your old way of living and now wanting to live for Him. Maybe you're a believer that is struggling right now. You're struggling with sins. You're struggling with doubts. This message is just as much for you. The gospel is for us every single day. The gospel not only saves us, it sanctifies us. I mean, it continually helps us grow closer to Christ. So even if you're a believer struggling, you turn tonight can also just experience the mercy of God by turning, repenting, believing, turning back to Christ. And he welcomes us with open arms. Or maybe you're a believer and that you're doing really well, that you are striving, you're doing well, you're pursuing Christ. You understand all that? My encouragement for you is to come alongside these believers that are struggling reminding them of that grace. They come alongside these unbelievers and point them to Jesus. They continue to live that out and preach the gospel to yourself daily. Never forget where our grace and mercy and strength come from. So here's what I want to do to close this out. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have just a little bit of a time of response. So just a few minutes to where you see at the bottom of your page where there's things you can write. Maybe it is a truth that God has brought to your heart that you want to write down. Maybe it is a sin that he has convicted you of that you want to write down. Maybe it's a decision that you want to make, that you want to write down. We want to be able to hear that. So here's what we're going to have. We're going to have a time of response for a few minutes. I'm going to invite Pastor Aaron to come up and he's just going to just strum his guitar a little bit just to give a little bit of background noise for us during that. Just give us a few minutes to respond. Maybe you want to tell a leader about something. Maybe you want prayer from a leader about something. We're here for you on that. And then after just a couple minutes, Pastor Ern's going to close us out um, in a song. And then after that, we'll be dismissed. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll enter into a time of response. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we're just so thankful for your son. We're so thankful that regardless of, of our hearts, regardless of just the times and days and everything we do that might not want anything to do with Christ, that Christ still pursues us. That he loves us dearly. He loves us just with an immeasurable love that you are rich in mercy and have paid our record of debt in full. So I pray that you will remind us of this. I pray that people that are held captive tonight will be made alive, that chains will fall, and that we can just sing and dance and celebrate for what you have done with your finished work of Christ on the cross. So Holy Spirit, would you work in each and every one of our lives right now, that you will just work on our hearts, you'll bring sins to our hearts that we need to confess, that you'll bring truths to our heart, that we can just sing even louder as we do this. Pray for transformation as only you can bring it. Thank you so much, God, that you are pursuing God. You never leave us, you never forsake us, but you're with us every step of the way. So pray you'll be with us every step of the way through this time of response, through us closing out in prayers, we sing these truths to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.